My guest today is the incredible Piri Jones Grossman. Piri started working in LA and over the following 20 years became a well-known actor and then a very high-profile presenter and TV host for E! Entertainment, Fox, NBC, CBS and ABC. She was famous, fabulous and part of an LA power couple. But privately, she struggled deeply. After hitting rock bottom, Piri left LA for good and settled in Sun Valley, Idaho. Over time, she broke through, found herself and decided to change her life. Today, Piri is an international best-selling author, a soul-centered transformational life coach and TEDx speaker, and co-founder and co-host of the amazing, and I can only recommend it to you, podcast, Own Your Throne. She has shared the stage with many luminaries, including Deepak Chopra, Elizabeth Gilbert, Marianne Williamson, Chris Carr, Dr. Jill Bolt-Taylor, and His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Today, through her own experiences, Piri works with clients to empower their life path, enabling them to learn and recover from their life events and rise like a phoenix to fulfill their potential. I am sure you will love our conversation as much as I did. You are listening to Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. I love a great story. So in this season, I will talk to incredible people who've experienced huge, pivotal moments of real change by choice or by circumstance. From stories of reinvention and inspiring career pivots to the dramatic shifts that happen in moments of crisis, I hope you can join us each week to hear about their fascinating and inspiring journeys. Welcome, Piri, to Double Espresso with Dee. Hi, Dee. I'm so excited to be here with you. It's wonderful to have you with me. So you are in Sun Valley, Idaho, no less. And I am in London under a dark sky. And it's wonderful to have you on the show with me today. So Piri, we have so much to cover. And you have gone through so many changes in your life. You've had lots of epiphanies. And today you are a real agent of change for many. But I would like to go back to your early childhood. It was challenging. It was complex. Your mother struggled and was unwell. What is your memory of that time? Mm. You know, I just finished writing my memoir, Dee, so it's a perfect time. Fantastic. You know, I'm not sure it's ever going to be published, but it was something that I needed to do for me, for my healing. But I want to go back a little bit. So I, I believe, and you and I had a conversation about this a little bit earlier, you know, I believe we are spiritual beings having a human experience and that this is earth school. I love that earth school. Earth school. And so our life experiences is what helps our soul advance. And I really believe when I I must have made some pact with somebody with the universe and said, okay, put me in the most difficult situation. Give me the craziest parents and the craziest childhood so I can have my soul advance within 20 years. Right. Um, And I was an accelerated version, but, um, my mother was, uh, you know, she was a basically bipolar narcissistic and she had a lot of mental disorders. 
she was only 20 years old when she had me. She got involved in drugs, um, but really at an early age for her, there wasn't a lot of camaraderie. There wasn't any self-esteem. There wasn't anything. So she found drugs and alcohol to make her feel better, as a lot of people do. And so when I was born, my dad and I were very close and he would take care of me because he knew she couldn't. It was a fun time, but she got very jealous of the relationship between my father and I. And she really started going back further and further into the dark. And one day when I was five years old, my dad was gone. She came in my bedroom, woke me up and told me to go outside and kneel, put my face in the dirt. And uh, before I knew it, there was a cold, hard thing on the back of my head and it was a gun. And she said, I have to kill you because your father loves you more than me. And, you know, I'm five. What, what are you supposed to do? What did you do? I, all I can remember, because, you know, your brain remembers what it remembers. And I, I can tell you the feeling has stayed with me. That feeling, it was terror. It was terror. It was, you know, I never felt comfortable around her anyway. I could see her eyes if she was going to be, you know, crazy mom or loving mom. But I remember it was just the terror because here's the woman or the person who's supposed to love you the most and take care of you. And who knew if I was going to live or die? I remember begging. I do remember that, begging her, crying, begging her not to do this. And then all of a sudden she just walked away. You know, so the only thing I knew was to go back to my bedroom. My brother was there. He was only a year old. And I fell asleep. And um, I woke up and my dad came. First, my mom came back in and she was happy mom. You know, the personality disorder. She was happy mom. She goes, I'm so sorry I did that. Please don't tell your father. Honey, I love you. I don't know what caused it, you know. And I, and I just wanted to be loved. And then she said to me, the secrets began then, don't tell your father. So I waited in my room until my father came home. And then the next day, in the evening, I saw two men walking up to the door. And they had a white jacket. And they came into the house and my mom started screaming. And I remember opening the door and peeking out to see what was going on. And they were chasing her. And they made her lay down and they put a syringe in her. I saw that and she got quiet and they wrapped her in the white. It was a straight jacket. And then they took her away. Oh my gosh. Must have been so traumatizing for you. And, and she looked at me at one point she's leaving and she just said, this is your fault. This is your fault. Also, you were a child, you know, like how do you as a child process these things? And it's very primal, isn't it? Even to the feeling that you can remember today, all these many years later of when you had that gun at your head, you know, the, the pure, raw terror in your body, right? It was, it was. And I, it was so terrorizing. What I did is I put it in the back of the recesses of my mind and I forgot it. I didn't have the memory of the gun incident again until I was 20 years old. Incredible, right? And how did you, as the years passed and your mother was back and it was clearly very unsettling and, and traumatic and painful and, and 
you probably felt quite fearful a lot of the time. How did you move forward? You know, because you've also, you know, said on occasion that you're almost like a caretaker, looking after other people, trying to keep people happy, feeling that, you know, maybe you weren't worthy of love because of this situation, which was nothing to do with you as an innocent little child, you know? Um, I turned to the church. It was really the church that got me through. It really was God that got me through. All I knew that I wanted to do was get out of there. I went to school uh, when I went to college and I went to Oral Roberts University. I went to a religious school, of course, and I felt safe. And I knew I didn't ever want to go back. I didn't want to go back to that home. And I went to a psychology class and they were doing, you know, various tools and stuff. And my memory came back with the gun incident. Gosh, how was that? I thought I was in another world. I thought this can't be true. But I knew something would happen between my mother and I. I just didn't know what it was or why I didn't trust her. Um, so I called my dad and I said, Dad, I have this memory and I want to tell you about it. So I told him and he said, you need to come home. We need to talk. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. I said, is this true? And he said, Yes, but I need to tell you the whole story. And I thought, oh, my God. And so he flew to Tulsa by himself. And we talked and we cried. And I said, how could you ever let her come back home with all we've gone through as kids? And he said, because the guilt of putting my wife away in a mental institution, he says, I will never forgive myself. And I thought, I, I just didn't understand their dance, their dysfunctional dance. How did you, in the days and weeks that followed, manage to process that? And, and did it, how did it make you feel about the whole situation? Well, it helped me understand why I had the feelings I had towards my mom, because I felt like I was the motherless child. You know, I remember looking at my girlfriend's moms and seeing how close they were and how much the moms took care of them and loved them. I didn't have that, D. I couldn't understand what was wrong with me. Well, there was nothing wrong with you, right? You know that now, but you didn't know that at the time. So, Perry, I want to explore in detail what you are doing today. But before we get to that point, I'd love to talk about... You know, you have this conversation with your father, you're at university, you're making your way, but you have very low self-worth. You don't feel love towards yourself. You feel that you're not good enough. You have all these negative feelings, which are nothing to do with you, right? It was just by force of circumstance as such. Nevertheless, you go on and you have this kick-ass career, uh, you, you know, you're on TV, you have a very successful media career, you're on all the big channels, you know, from the outside, it looks fabulous. You look fabulous, it looks fabulous. How did you create that chapter for yourself in your life? I mean, do you think your drive was born out of some of the hardship and the struggles or what was it? Remember I told you I got attention and love is performing. And so... What I learned to do was to stuff my feelings down. Nobody knew. If you just looked at me or talked to me, nobody knew how much pain was inside of me. Nobody knew what it took for me to go and be on television and the self-worth I'd have to overcome. Nobody knew that, Dee. That was buried within me. 
And, and like I said, I keep talking about God, but I would pray. That's all I knew how to do is, you know, just to, cause I knew somehow God loved me and that's what I hung on to. I clung to it. So the thing that brought me so much joy was entertaining people. I love to talk. Like you mentioned that yourself, you know, I love to interview people. I love to hear their stories and I learned what made me happy, what brought me joy. And I found something that I was good at. Um, that was probably the first time I was really happy and felt like I could bring happiness to other people. Did you feel independent at that point? I mean, clearly you were financially independent, but did you feel, you know, you'd gotten away from the sort of pain and toxicity? Yeah, I got to reinvent myself. I got to be somebody I really wanted to be. And I didn't have to talk about my mother. And when you when you first got married, I'd love to hear from you a little bit on this because, you, you know, you it was that journey that went on for quite some time of trying to reinvent yourself in some ways, looking for stability. I have this beautiful former guest called Christine Handy, and she talks about, and you do too, it's about the work that we do on ourselves, right? It's not somebody else. It's not your husband or your best friend or, you know, anyone else. Frankly, it's the inside job we do on ourselves. And, and often we are in life looking for the perfect relationship. It could be a business relationship with a co-founder, right? Or with, you know, uh, a CEO or another member of a board or a friendship or or a, a relationship. Um, how was that first marriage? What happened? And how did, did your mother behave differently now that you were a grown-up ostensibly in a marriage? I married very young. I got married when I was 22. Um, he was somebody I met at Oral Roberts University. He was a youth pastor. And I became a youth pastor too. So we joined this big church, Metro Church in, in Edmond, Oklahoma. You know, we were kids. We were real kids. and um, Not fully formed even cool. neurologically, right, no, at 22? No, no. And he was a singer and wanted to, you know, make his way. But he wanted me to be a stay-at-home wife, housewife, which I never was. I mean, I worked even in college. But the truth was... It was another time that I felt like I was living in prison. And I just gotten out of prison when I was a child. And now I felt like I was back in one with somebody telling me I can't do something. And I just thought there was something in me, Dee. I don't know. I, to be honest with you, you know what we talked about earlier about that little warrior side of me that just stood up for herself and said, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I did. Well, you find your war, your inner warrior and you find your inner voice, right? And I think so often we don't exercise our voice and we sort of know, don't we? We know that something's right or not right. We know that it doesn't feel comfortable, but also you were trying to keep everybody else happy. And so where did that take you? So you, you go to LA, you're doing your commercial, you're off. What happened next? I did. I, I got an agent right away. I started going out, you know, like I said, finding out that I was a terrible actress. <laughs> but, you know, I booked some uh, soap operas at the time and some nighttime, like, you know, Dallas. And oh, my Dynasty, God, I used to love all those. Uh, yes. And so I, you know, I, I had a Texas accent still, so I could do those shows. But then I found out that I really like hosting. 
So I ended up booking uh, as a TV host on E! Entertainment Television. And it was just, it was 10 years of pure bliss. I was known as the E-Girl, was making great money, great friends, you know, all of that. So well, from a professional point of view, it was, it was a very successful time for you. You you grew, you you had big, big jobs. You learned a lot professionally as well. Did you feel, because you mentioned the word happiness, that you kind of moved along from some of the suffering? I did. You know, I, I knew I moved along, but there was still that little piece of me that was, I didn't want people to know. There was some shame there. There was a piece of me that I still felt like I had what's called imposter syndrome. Yeah, which is so commonplace and particularly among women, right? They don't feel they're good enough. No. And I I felt like if anybody ever found out about my mother and what happened to me and that I wasn't lovable by my own mother, I still believed that I had to work extra hard and convince people that I was lovable. And so the performance came out of me. If I could make you laugh, if I could ask the right questions, if I, if I dated a successful actor, um, if that person loved me, then I must be lovable. The validation, it never came from within me. Outside of in work, I knew I had some talent. I knew I was good. Pull a life, zero. Do you think you were putting, which we've all done, you know, everything, every molecule of energy in your being emotionally, spiritually, intellectually into your work, and you just didn't have the capacity or the bandwidth? Or do you think it was really that essence of you where you still hadn't really learned to trust other people or really sit in peace with yourself? Absolutely. I, I kept running. Um, I did not like being alone. I did not like um, the feelings I had about myself when I was alone. I had to be in a relationship all the time. I had some close girlfriends, which was really new for me to trust and love them, which was such a gift. And, But again, even with them, I still had this little belief that no matter what I did, how much I proved, I would have to keep proving my worth. And there was an actor that I, that I interviewed, and I can't remember who it was, and he looked at me and he said, you know, he goes, I see some sad eyes. And it shook me up. I was like, what? He goes, there's some sadness in your eyes. And he said, what about you? I know who it was. It was uh, Gregory Peck. Oh, my gosh. And I just looked at it and I was like, I don't know, but I did know. And I tried so hard to cover it up. But some people could see it. But like, for example, when they could, well, he referenced it, did that, you know, sometimes it just takes someone to say something for you to collapse, right? Yeah, it did. I went home and I cried and I thought, you know, I'm not hiding it as well as I think I am. And then I found Al-Anon because my mom had been a drinker and a pill popper. And I thought, Al-Anon, I didn't know about that. So I go into Al-Anon meetings and I started, it started bubbling up. 
the the piece that I needed to start healing because I didn't know anybody else had this. And why would you? Why would you? You know? I didn't know. And back then in the 80s, people were just talking about it. So I became a student. I became a spiritual student because I knew I needed to heal inside. So sometime later, you decided to leave LA. What happened with the kind of, uh, as a breakthrough when you were going through this terrible time to get you out of LA and, and to change and put you on a new path in Sun Valley? Well, you know what they say is if what you can't do for yourself, the universe does for you or God does for you. I met a man who was a movie producer in LA. He was a very famous movie producer. He had a daughter, stepdaughter, because by the way, I never wanted children. Did not like them, did not want them. Do you think that was a direct consequence of just, you know, your own upbringing, right? Absolutely. And I kept having dreams that I had a baby and I forgot her. I kept leaving and forgetting her. And that was what I was doing to myself is what I did. I realized later. Anyway, I met this man that I was very much in love with. And we decided to have a child because I loved his stepdaughter. His daughter became my stepdaughter. And she showed me how to play, how to be mom. And I fell hard in love with both of them. So for a couple of years, you know, we dated and anyway, we decided to get married and try to have a child. It didn't work. We couldn't even, we tried IVF, uh, which I was in and out of the hospitals all the time. Um, we tried surrogates, even the surrogates couldn't get pregnant. So for four years, I put myself, my body through everything to try. And again, that was a piece of me feeling afraid if I didn't perform for this man, he was going to not love me anymore, which is exactly what happened. So I couldn't get pregnant. I couldn't have a child. And he came home and said, this marriage is over. And I thought, oh my God, here I'm full of all these drugs, all the IVF drugs. And he left me for a weekend and I just went in the dark. I really went and I wasn't working at E anymore because I had resigned with, you know, just traveling with him. And um, I just got out of the hospital and I had just probably about 10 bottles of various prescriptions. And I don't think I ever felt that dark and hopeless in my life. And I remember he went upstairs and he said, I think you should pack your things and go home to your parents tomorrow. That's how brutal it was. And um, I was 39 years old and I thought, I can't start over. I can't do this. And that piece of me that was never healed, that little five-year-old girl came up and started telling me it's too hard. It's too hard. And so I thought it was better for me to be dead than alive. So I consumed over 300 pills and just laid down. And I just, I was okay with dying. And I understand that piece, you know, because people don't try to end their lives because they want to end their lives. They want to end the pain. That's what they want to do. They want to end the pain. So by God's magic and miracles, um, I survived it, was in the hospital, put away and, and uh, had a breakdown. I went to Texas and my dad said to me, you know, you need to wipe all this Hollywood crap off you and find your Texas roots again. And I did. I left LA. 
I left the life. I left the glitz, you know, that whole crazy life. I mean, we, we would have dinner. We lived in Bel Air. We'd have dinners with John Travolta, Michael Douglas. I mean, that was the common life. We were the it power couple. And to have it all taken away in a day. Did you just feel the carpet was taken from under your feet? Completely. And it was because I think also what was going on with me, I had so many prescriptions and drugs in the IVF drugs in me. I, I didn't know if I was coming or going. I was not myself. And I was ashamed of what I had done. I was so ashamed. So I moved to Sun Valley to heal. And it was really difficult. But I knew if God gave me a second chance, then you know what? I'm going to figure out why I'm here and I'm not going to waste my life anymore. So, you know, you'd been through this very, very um, painful experience of IVF not working and the consequences of, of that on your mind and your soul and your body, right? It's like the full whammy. Where'd you start? I remember laying on the floor and in tears, I got a phone call from a former boss. His name was Byron Allen, who was a producer. And he heard what had happened. He said, I want you to come back to work. I said, I'm not going back to LA. He goes, no, you're not going back to LA. He said, but I have a show called Every Woman. And I want you to get back out there. And your first assignment is to interview Maya Angelou in North Carolina. And I said, who is that? He said, go do your reading. He said, but I'm going to give you some purpose. He says, because you still have a gift. And I thought, okay, the one thing I knew I could still do was that. So I went to, to meet with Maya. I had a three hour interview with her. She took me back to her home. We had lunch we walked out in her backyard. She has all these sculptures in her backyard. And she took my hand. I weighed maybe 98 pounds. And she took my hand and she said, I want you to tell me why you're so sad. And I thought, oh, my God. So I just told her everything collapsed. I was there until night. My crew went home. We had dinner together. And she remembered and tried to remind me of the gift I had to communicate for people who couldn't. And she said, God gave you a second chance. And she goes, use it. And she said, but you have a gift I don't want you to forget. Go out there and fight for it. So when I came here, I, and I did different shows, you know, I interviewed Catherine Graham and Maya Angelou, and it was like soul food. Here's these brilliant, amazing women who all had painful past. And I started thinking, if they can do it, certainly I can do it. Certainly I can heal and find something meaningful in my life. It strikes me what you're talking about here is your special gift, right? And we all have gifts. We all have talents. Often we don't recognize it because it's been knocked out of us. Um, but at that moment when you were on the floor, these people came into your life to tell you that you had it and that it was your responsibility to do something with it. It was. And it was, you know, because I didn't want to be a victim because I heard their stories and they could either choose to be empowered or be a victim. 
and they always chose to be empowered no matter how hard it was. They had to pick themselves up off the ground just like I had to. And I kept watching the footage, the raw footage from the interviews, and it was building me up and building me up. I met a friend here who was a nurse who was amazing. Only takes one person. And I hope people who listen to this remember you don't know who you're talking to and you don't know the path they've been on. Be kind, be supportive, because this one woman was so kind to me and she helped me heal. And it was a process of healing. And then as God did it, I met this other bright light. as a man who was 10 years younger than me. My babies came. I mean, I was hallelujah, in my 40s. right? But you didn't <laughs> give up. Thought- you didn't give up. Do you think, though, just on the subject of motherhood, which obviously was another epiphany for you, because, I mean, what, what is more beautiful than having these little babies come into the world, right, who make our heart beat? Do you think that maybe part of the struggle, and I don't want to be Freudian about this, but was really the complexity of your relationship with your own mother and trying all those times. And it was a fight to have babies. And then maybe with this healing process you went through, you were ready. I was ready. And I I wanted to give to them and be the mother that I always wished I had. And it was, they're such blessings. And they were miracle children because every doctor told me I couldn't get pregnant. And there was an inside belief and I had a vision of them and I knew it was a boy and a girl. I saw them. I met them in a vision and I just, you know, I, I was just always moving forward, not a stubborn way because I don't believe, you know, there's a lot of times that we have to be flexible because there's a lot of things that we want that there's doors that will shut and it doesn't mean you should keep going. You know, sometimes the universe redirects us. And so I was open to that. I was open to maybe I'm supposed to adopt. Maybe I'm supposed to, you know, whatever. But I didn't lose hope about having a child, however the child came. And that was the beginning of a deep healing for me and a reinvention big time. Because I remember the first time, oh, my God, this is such a terrible story. But here I am in a little podunk, you know, Idaho. When I was in LA, I'd walk into a grocery store. People knew who I was. You know, oh, that's the e-girl. They'd come up for an autograph or they'd say, oh, I loved your show. And I had a show. It's called Coming Attractions. And I, so I was always used to meeting people and I loved it. Well, the first time I walked to a grocery store here in Idaho, I walked in and it was like <laughs> crickets. People looked at me like, whatever. They could care less who I was. And I remember kind of giggling to myself and I thought, Oh my God, my identity. I don't know who the hell I am. And I'm not, I'm more than the e-girl. So can I ask you, can I ask you about this? Because I'm obsessed about reinvention and people reinventing themselves. And I know you've written about this. (laughs) And, you know, there are lots of theories that people get to the midpoint of life you know, do have a a mini crisis or a mini awakening, even if their lives look semi-normal at that point that will lead them to reinvention? I'll tell you, I do believe that for women, women, and I think perimenopause and menopause in general starts it. You know, we raise our kids, they're gone. We're in marriages, divorces happen. We've, like you said before, we caretake everybody else 
except us. But then at perimenopause and menopausal time is the time where we awaken to the fact, what about me? What do I want? How am I going to take care of me? And there's a, there's hormones that surges. So there was a Nobel, I have to tell you about this study. This is so great. I just found this out. So Ohio State University did a study about Nobel Peace Prize winners. And they said that there are actually two different creative surges in our lives. It's either between 20 and 29, or again, between 57 and 62, and primarily with women. And they said, you know, there's something about <laughs> the, the risk that menopausal women are ready to do and their creativeness is at an all-time high. Gosh, so interesting. So reaffirming, right? Yes, yes. So when you feel the hormone of having wanting a child in your 30s, you know, you get that feeling. It's like you can't think of anything except that. The same thing will happen with women about 45 on up is they want to create something. They want to do something with them. They want to do something with all the years that they lived and the life experiences and the wisdom. So what can they create? And that's that creative muse, you know, coming in. And and it doesn't always have to be a big worldwide changing thing. There could be a woman, a CEO who's tired of the corporate world and she wants to come home and garden. She wants to come home and work on a potter's wheel. You know, she wants to get her hands. She It's that creative urge. She wants to write a book. And it's just as powerful of a reinvention as somebody who maybe was a you know gardener, but she's got something to say and wants to write. I have a client right now who's creating a TV show. She's brilliant. But we had to get the obstacles out, cleared out of her for her to create that. Those are the things inside of us that we have not healed. Those are things I shared with you. Lack of self-esteem. They don't want to fail and they don't want to be ridiculed. And the biggest regrets people have in the second part of their lives is what they didn't do. You could even do it and fail and there's no regret because you know. But it's the stuff we always felt like was deep inside of us, but we didn't have the guts or the energy to do it. That becomes a regret. You know what as well? I mean, I always say to my children and anybody, frankly, who wants to listen to me that like, wh- like what's the worst that can happen? Like, yeah. give it a go. Like, just give it a go. Like, even if you if, even if it doesn't work, at least you've, you know, you've tried, right? And you'll have learned something about yourself in the process. And I think it's the fear factor as well. And in your case, when you went down this road of reinvention, you know, you're coming back to yourself, you're healing and you went back to study. You've got a master's in spiritual psychology and you became a transformational life coach. Tell me about that because it's, you know, you have lots of very, very interesting clients of all types. You work with a lot of women who are going through major change and reinvention. Tell me about what this means and what this work involves. Well, I wanted to go deeper and I'll I'll finish the story because it's about my mom. So I never forgave her. And my dad had, had passed away and um, he died suddenly. And I was really angry. I was angry that God took him and not her. And I remember when I came home and my mom looked at me and she goes, I know you wished it was me instead of him. And I said, you're right. I do. I said, but I guess 
God has some other healing between us. And so I went to USM, University of Santa Monica, to go through this two-year spiritual program because I wanted to learn to forgive my mom. That was it. I had no intentions of being a coach. I wanted to learn how to truly forgive my mom because I knew if I didn't, Dee, I was hurting myself because I was still going from relationship to relationship, right? There was still a part of me that was not healed. And this was the mother wound. This was the big mother wound. I think the biggest thing I had to realize was that, you know, what my mother did was years ago. I was 55. So that happened 50 years ago. I was still seeing her as the woman when I was five. She changed. I had learned that there's some two spiritual laws that are very important. One is it's never the issue. It's how you handle the issue, how you react to it. But the most important one is that we are responsible for our lives. You're responsible for yours. I'm responsible for mine. We can't control anybody else's but us. And we decide, are we going to continue being the victim and still have that narrative because it's comfortable or not? And what I learned about forgiveness is forgiveness was not saying I'm not going to forget what happened or let her off the hook and she could still treat me like crap because she was still not being a great mother even at 55. It was for me. Because I needed to show up even more powerfully with my children. I wanted a beautiful relationship in my life. I kept marrying my mother. All these men I had in my life, they were all my mother because it was unfinished business. So I had a breakdown where I thought this forgiveness is not for her, it's for me. And I had to realize that she was my greatest teacher and when I looked at her differently and realized she did the best she could do, she had to deal with a debilitating and still does deal with schizophrenia, bipolar. There's all kinds of things that she has to deal with that I don't. So finding that compassion and also forgiving myself. And so I'll never forget, this was a year's worth of work. And I went and picked her up and I took her and we spent a week together. And it was the first time, Dee, that she took my hands and she said, thank you. And I said, for what? She goes, I know you've forgiven me. And she just said, I am so sorry. You have no idea how much I beat myself up for it. And I don't know how to change it. I know you've turned into such an amazing woman for you to be able to forgive me and help others to learn how to forgive people. And she goes, because I would not do that if I knew what I was doing. And I said, I, I know. So the change in my life, when I was able to truly forgive her and move forward, Dee, I'm a different person. I, I bet. And that's massive. And thank you so much for sharing that. It's so beautiful and it's so touching. And But that is that is a hell of a lot of work to get to that point, right? Like that just does not happen like that. No, it doesn't. And, it's, and that's why I'm so passionate about what I teach, because no matter what anybody's gone through, and I mean anything, you can't surprise me with anything. It's still like, okay, wow, you chose a pretty tough curriculum on earth school. So how are we going to heal it? in you so that you can now, instead of staying in the pain and that narrative, 
How can you move forward and go do what you're supposed to be doing and be that amazing voice in the world? Because we need you. We need more lights out in this crazy world right now. And it starts with healing. Can I ask you, Perry, you become a coach. Does this now feel like your life's mission? Oh, my gosh, yes. It is so my life's mission. You know, I believe that we all have different purposes in our lives, different stages, right? And the stage that I'm at, I was just told you, in July I'm turning 65, and I I have never been happier in my life. I am doing exactly what I want to be doing. I'm still able to use the gifts that I have in my teaching and teaching workshops and speaking and all of that. I'm in a beautiful um, relationship Wonderful. You know, for two and a half years. Wonderful. <clears throat> That's not my mother. <laughs> and um, I, my children are happy. They're doing, you know, it's a time I have never experienced such peace and joy and and that's what I want for everybody. It's a process and of course everyone's unique and different but approximately what what is the process look like? Well, so it's a, it's a soul centered coaching and it you know I started I created a formula and it actually was like a download and it's it's getting people and women particularly at a certain age. Most of my clients are over 45. And they don't know why they're not happy. They don't know why. They know they're missing something. They know if I don't do something before I die, I'm not going to be happy. There's an unhappiness that at a certain age, the survival skills that we did when we were younger, they don't work anymore. So we got to learn something new. But what they do want is how do I get to the other side? And we talk about what the other side looks like. What do you see for yourself? What do you really want to do? Get in there and create and be imagination. You know, just how do you want to feel? And what are you doing that makes you feel that way? And so we create that first. That's the end goal. Pretty, um, tell me, this is a difficult question, but you will know the answer. Mm -hmm. What are the one or two things you would say to that woman who feels that she's become invisible, who's not feeling great in her physical body because of hormonal changes and so forth, um, who's not quite sure what the way forward is. What are the couple of things that you would recommend that that woman does today? I will tell you the first thing, because women are not good at doing this, and that's asking for help. Being very real about your life and being honest and don't be like what I did a pretender, you know, not authentic, be authentic about where you really are and reach out for help. There's, there's more coaches around the world. Now there's, you can get on the internet and find help. Don't try to do this by yourself. And most importantly, don't give up on yourself because this is how you feel now. This is the present moment. Feelings change, but give it another moment. Because another moment you've just changed that needle over one little group, it will change in time. It can change in a minute. And know that you were born for a reason. God has you and made you, wonderfully made you. 
And we just get caught up in some painful things from the past that we're still carrying around us. It's like rocks in a bag and we're still dragging them around from when we were five years old. But don't give up on yourself. You're worth it. Worth it. Well, Perry, thank you so much. It's been beautiful to talk to you today. You are a total rock star. I absolutely love you. And I'm very excited about many more conversations together and to the next chapter. Thank you. Seriously, I could have talked to Piri all day long. What an incredible story. I cannot believe all that she's been through and overcome, and yet remains a light, serene, and joyful presence. I absolutely loved the idea of Earth School, of how we are always learning, and the fact that Perry refers to her mother as her biggest teacher, despite what she went through, is truly the epitome of learning something from all the experiences of our lives, however painful. It also reminds me that we are all teachers for one another. Perry also illustrates the innate human capacity for survival, how even in the pain and confusion of early adulthood, she managed to create a career that played to her biggest strengths, and how she found happiness in the midst of her own profound challenges. Her passion for people and their stories led her to an incredible epiphany in Maya Angelou's garden, when Maya told her not to give up on her gift. This gift remained with Piri, and of course, what she does now is about helping people find their gift and fight for themselves. She said at one point, but that little warrior in me just stood up for herself and said, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. An important message about listening to that warrior voice inside each of us that keeps us fighting on. Thank you, amazing, wonderful Piri, for inspiring us all today. I hope you all enjoyed our chat as much as I did. And if you would like to connect with Piri or hear more about her, the links are below. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Double Espresso with Dean. Do connect with me on Instagram at D Double Espresso. I love hearing your feedback and what has resonated with you. And don't forget to join me next week for another amazing guest interview. Until then, au revoir.